This episode is brought to you by Set for Life Insurance. Listen, docs, one of the first steps we took to pay off our student loan debt was realizing we paid way too much for our disability insurance. That all changed when we found Set for Life Insurance. They helped us with a customized insurance policy that met our needs and most of all, budget. To learn more, check out setforlifeinsurance.com. This episode is brought to you by Physician CEO. Finally, a business program for busy doctors just like you. Get the skills of branding, marketing, entrepreneurship, and combine those with your gifts as a physician. Be known as a doc outside the box and define your future. Learn more at physician-ceo.com forward slash D-O-T-B. All right, Dr. David Hampton, how you doing? Welcome to the Ask Dr. Nee segment. Hey, Dr. Nee, thanks for having me. Great to be here. First of all, I just want to say thank you very much for jumping on. I know you're extremely busy. For those who don't know, Dr. David Hampton is at a new trauma center that is doing amazing things on the south side of Chicago. You're at the University of Chicago trauma department, which is relatively new. So I'm going to let you take it from there. Let us know more about this, and then we'll get into the question. All right. Yeah, I'm actually one of the trauma surgeons at the University of Chicago, and we're pretty much right on the edge of the south side what you always hear in the news about the violence in Chicago. We are on the front lines and we see an unfortunate amount of problematic kids, adults, etc. Now we started about two and a half years ago with myself and my seven partners. And from the get-go, we had to teach the university how to deal with trauma, how to triage patients, how to expeditiously move them about the nurses, the ICU nurses, all the way down to how we discharge them and make sure they come back. That's been an incredible two and a half year journey so far. Now, prior to the program starting, the majority of patients who were injured on the South Side, they were sent to other hospitals. Now, is it true that some of these hospitals weren't very close on the South Side or can you explain how that worked? Yes, when you actually look at a map of the south side where the University of Chicago sits, it sits about halfway between downtown and the center of the south side. So in essence, any trauma patient that was injured would have to go above downtown or go to west west to a hospital called Christ. And one of the big emphasis is the University of Chicago taking trauma or adult trauma was a Southside activist that was shot two blocks away from University Hospital. And because he was not a pediatric patient, he could not go to the pediatric hospital, but actually had to go to one of the hospitals that was further away. And it took about half an hour and 40 minutes to get up there. And unfortunately, he passed away. And I think that was one of the big sentinel events that caused the University of Chicago to Except that, yes, indeed, you know, they could provide a huge amount of benefit for the South Side. And unfortunately, that was important result. But I think you know, many people have benefited because of that. Yeah, they, we have the golden hour in trauma, but sometimes it may be even the golden half hour, honestly, particularly in penetrating trauma, maybe. Right. Actually, I'm in the military, and we call it the platinum 10. Those first 10 minutes you know, really make a difference. You know? Golden Hour, which uh, R.M. Cowley had coined many years ago, and it was a great start, especially for helicopter transport throughout Korea and Vietnam. But looking at the, the injuries here and what we can do for them, and just find out the, the 
faster they get to you, the better their outcome will be. Now, you said you're in the military. So first of all, I just want to say thank you very much for your service. And that is not in the lightest of terms. I know that this is a very serious deal going overseas and providing medical care for soldiers as well as yourself, just you know, putting yourself in harm's way. So I want to say that we, definitely the audience of Docs Outside the Box, appreciate your sacrifice. Now, before we get into this question, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Like, Tell us about what school you went to, the age, all of that stuff. <laughs> so yeah, I'm actually from just outside of Seattle, Washington, a town called Bellevue. And you know, when I was a young kid, I said I want to go as far away as I can from home and demonstrate my independence. So I ended up going to MIT, which was on the East Coast. Wow. Yeah. Just about as far Complete away. opposite yeah. end. <laughs> yes. And ended up doing a bachelor's degree there. And during that whole time, was fascinating between engineering and medicine. And okay, I have to make a decision on which way I'm going to go. Two years off, went back home to the University of Washington and got a job in a research lab and had a full-time job as an engineer to pay the bills. And decided, hey, this is the way I wanted to go. So finished all the pre-med requirements, went back to MIT, got into a master's program in bioengineering. And at the same time, you know, I had to hedge my bets while I was applying for medical school, you know, make sure I had a job. And sure enough, both came through. And luckily, I got to the med school at Washington University in St. Louis, but also got a job with Toshiba just outside of Tokyo, Japan. Really? Yeah. When the medical school found out, they're like, that's a great opportunity. You should take that for a year before coming back to St. Louis. Thank you very much. And Wait, the medical school encouraged you to take that job? Yes. Really? Yeah. So okay. they, they were all for it. It was a job in bioengineering. And I said, okay, I'll come back in a year. And we signed everything before I left and went to Japan and worked for Toshiba for a year. I lived in the company dormitory, toured the whole country. And during that time, I kept in touch with a Navy recruiter and actually had my package go through and signed up for the Navy scholarship while I was in Japan. So I was commissioned as an officer. Uh, Once that year was up, I came back, went to medical school, finished Six years and two years of research, and afterwards, yeah. <laughs> oh, Doctor David, man, you just wanted hard. <laughs> I was taking that wayward route. Yeah. Wait, if you don't mind me asking, what age were you when you're coming back and you're actually starting medical school? So when I started medical school, that was 1998. So I was 27. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So when I graduated in 2004, was commissioned as a lieutenant of the Navy. And then went to Naval Hospital Balboa in San Diego to do my internship. And as part of the Navy internship, you have a choice of applying for residency through the military or going out to what we call a fleet. So I opted to go into the fleet and was assigned as a general medical officer for the third Marine Expeditionary Force in Okinawa, Japan. So my wife and I spent four years, four deployed living in Okinawa, which was incredible. And our area of operation was basically anything that touched the Pacific Ocean. So you know, Korea, Thailand, the Philippines, Australia. We did a stint with the UN forces in Mongolia. And it was my job to ensure that all of our Marines were well and healthy 
during these deployments. And it was pretty exciting. You know, a few of the times it was myself, maybe a thousand Marines, and 10 what we call corpsmen, first responders, and that was it. And my nearest help may have been four hours away by Humvee, and occasionally you know, we would have the rotary wing evac. No such thing as a consult. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there, there were no consultations. But luckily, you know, we always had good relationships with Holtz Nation hospitals and occasionally had to use them. But thankfully, you know, we didn't have any significant injuries and we all came back together. Were you ever in harm's way yourself? I know that the folks that you were taking care of may have been, but... No, I think throughout all of our deployments, which we are called exercises, usually when we say deployments, going downrange, luckily, no. You know, some of my Marines did deploy downrange for anywhere from six to nine months at a time. So they definitely were. And fortunately, we did have one of our reservists killed in Afghanistan while he was deployed. It was very unfortunate. And the reason why I remember the date is because my cell phone went off during Thanksgiving dinner. And he and the unit had actually gone out to an Afghan village to celebrate Thanksgiving with them. And it turned out to be, unfortunately, an ambush. And he was unfortunately killed during that event. So all of us back home, you know, whole being Okinawa, had to get his effects together and, you know, kind of get everything together for him, for he and his family. And our unit said, you know, we're going to do something for your family. Move them out. And we had a celebration, you know, in honor of him. But that was one of the big central points of our deployment. Well, I'm sure a bunch of sobering events, particularly that one. And I'm glad that you were able to describe that because I think, you know, we have med students who listen. We have pre-meds, obviously, who we're going to hear from next, who really want to know what it's like, you know, a commissioned officer from a physician standpoint. So thank you very much for sharing that story. And once again, thank you for your service and your sacrifice. So the reason I was asking these questions is to kind of set the stage that you are very knowledgeable on what the next question is going to be. So before I asked you to continue on how your training was, I want the audience and I want you to hear this question from Jamar, who's going to be basically asking, is it too old to become a surgeon? So I'm going to play that and then we'll get back to it, okay? Hi, Dr. Darko. I'm Jamar. I'm 31 years old, application engineer. Three years ago, I decided I wanted to become a physician. And so I started taking pre-med classes, just the prereqs, because I have a master's degree already in computer information systems. And, you know, I hopefully can get through medical school, residency, and become an attending. I'll be in my 40s, probably. I wanted to be a surgeon. So I was just wondering if you knew any surgeons out there that took the same path as me and starting late in this career and have found that they get the same opportunities now as if, you know, they started back when they were in the 30s. There's a lot of things I want to do that include medicine and is outside of medicine, like real estate that you're doing. And I also want to have my hands in innovation and medical devices. So just wondering if, if you know of the opportunities out there are still there for people that are in their 40s or so just getting started. Thank you, and uh, love your podcast. All right, there it is. There's his question. So obviously, uh, Jamar is asking, you know, is it too late to start in his 30s towards his goal of becoming a surgeon? And I think he's kind of worried about if there's some type of 
maybe possibly some ageism once you get to a certain point in your 40s or just the opportunities in general are not as good at that age as opposed to when you're earlier. So I'll let you answer this question. You may even want to just complete your story just as proving to him that you could definitely do it. Very good question. It's actually one that I actually went through when I was applying for residency because when I was applying, I was 38 years old. So Wait, applying for residency? Yeah, as an intern. Wow, okay. Yes. Yeah, so much older than someone coming out of medical school, usually on your 24, 25 years old. And I would safely say that it is actually a benefit more so because a lot of programs were looking someone with worldly experience, someone who's a little bit older, uh, individuals who can walk in and basically act a little bit more independently than the average intern. Um, you know, granted with four years of, you know, exercise experience under my belt, you know, I was used to acting alone, which you know, kind of worked in my favor. When I finished medical school and applied for fellowship, I was 44. So I went from being one of the oldest interns to one of the the oldest fellows in a very rigorous two-year trauma critical care fellowship at Shock Trauma in Baltimore. And it was a no joke. You're on call. You're on call for 38, 40 hours of being awake at a time. And there were some very harrowing nights, but you you make it through. And, you know, I think part of it is that that level of maturity and knowing what you want to do in life and what you want to get out of it really comes into play. You know, I don't think, at least I never experienced any sorts of ageism against myself with regards to applying for jobs and actually, you know, chatting with some of the junior attendings who I was 10 years older than. You know, I think they enjoyed having someone that was a little bit older who understood when they Ask for you to do something, you just did it. You know, or if you wanted to have a conversation, you know, you could have that conversation. You know, I think in hindsight, on my side, having to work with your chief resident that was 10 years younger than you, yeah, you know, that you know, really didn't have that world. Listen, Skippy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and to a large extent, trying to internalize that, you know, it was uh, very humbling. But at the same time, you know, it really demonstrated your sense of self-worth and you know, kind of tested your mettle at times. But in the end, product you know, definitely made you stronger. So from a perspective of starting too old, I don't think there ever is an age of being too old. You know, I'm sure there's a, a threshold of sorts depending on your physiologic reserve and all. But I think from the sense of Reaching that level where you're like, this is what I want to do in my life and knowing how to get there is the way to go. Um, it sounds like Jamal and I have some overlap, you know, with regards to engineering. And, you know, I think that goes in your favor a huge amount, more so when you look at the way that surgery is going, the types of devices that are coming out, the intricacies of them, that it's inescapable. Yeah, you can't perform surgery without stepping over something that the engineering gods have provided for you. You know, whether it's the Bobi to ECMO to Mars to who knows what's coming down the pipeline next, engineering and medicine and engineering and surgery will forever be intertwined. 
Oh yeah. And then you walk down the street and you turn on the radio and you hear a commercial about robotic surgery. Now you cannot escape engineering and surgery. It is the wave of the future. So I think, you know, tomorrow you got a best huge and open world ahead of you if you stick with it. What was it like when, you know, taking some of those crazy shifts? I'm sure, you know, whatever age you're at, it shouldn't really matter. But what was it like taking those 24-hour, 36-hour, maybe even 40-hour shifts at your age? I'm sure you were well-seasoned for it. Yeah, I think uh, you get adjusted to it, per se, up to a point. And <laughs> I, like when my you know, Red Bull does wonders for you, you know, having a family that understands what you're going through as well, you know, also helps, you know, I think. My wife always knew that um, those post-call nights that I would just go straight home and I would meet dinner and I would fall asleep and she would really tell us, like, you know, that was a long day. And, you know, thankfully, you know, it's that the the understanding part of your family really helps, you know, and at the same time, you have to reciprocate and you're making those decisions for where to go to residency and knowing that your wife is of the same age and she will be changing her career and then again going off to fellowship and the same sort of transition and then finally going off to wherever you start your career as a surgeon, you know, exact same thing. So I think, you know, even though those nights were long, you know, there, there comes a point where it's like, hey, honey, thank you very much. That's what I wanted to ask you, but like how difficult were those conversations? Because, you know, I'm sure Jamar will probably have that situation where he has a partner possibly at this point, like how difficult were those conversations to compromise? And when I say compromise, I put that in quotes because as we all know with medicine, medical school, residency, and even fellowship to some extent, you get in where you fit in. So there's really not much choice as to where you're going to go. So what was those conversations like? Oh, exactly. You know, like when we were transitioning from active duty military and doing the residency interviews, I was flying back and forth from Japan for all these interviews and you know, so I would lump them together and you know made three like two and a half week long trips running around interviewing multiple sites. And as I interviewed, you know, I would call or send an email back, letting my wife know say, hey, start looking at this city. This looks even better. What do you think about this one? And she was in the whole part of like making that first transition. I ended up going to Oregon Health and Science, Portland, Oregon. And just loved it, and she loved it too. And you know, when the transition time came to look at fellowships, same sort of thing. And I was like, okay, you know, these are the places we're looking at. And luckily for me, each one of the places that we both agreed upon had something for her. You know, for instance, Portland had the lifestyle, and it was close to my family, which is a nice important network. When I was applying for fellowships, got the Trailblazers. Basketball is my thing. So <laughs> yeah, they were good at that time there. So, yeah. <laughs> but they got they came back. Uh, but applying for fellowship, you know, my wife had always wanted to live on the East Coast, you know. So when I got the offer interview in Baltimore, he was like, This is great. You know, this is not an opportunity for both of us. And you know, we spent two fabulous years in Baltimore, traveling up and down the East Coast. And you know, when I started applying for jobs, you know, my wife and I were dating and I got married, surprisingly, or, you know, the karmic planes were aligned because she had always mentioned how she always wanted to live in Chicago. And, you know, when I got the call to come out and interview, 
And when I came back, she knew about the wind, though, right? She knew how cold it got there, right? Because Baltimore cold and Chicago cold are two different things. They are two different things. (laughs) As Isaac Hayes says, the hawk, the hawk will get you. (laughs) It is amazing and disturbing what that's here in Chicago. Yeah, I heard so much about it and thought nothing of it until the polar vortex last year. It's like, yeah, no, disturbing. But she had always mentioned that she wanted to live in Chicago. And it's like, all right, you know, this is a nice transition. You know, I can start my career. She can move to where someplace that, you know, she had always wanted to move to. And it was just, everything has worked out beautifully. But I think part of the beauty and making that happen is the open communication at each step and saying, this is where we're going next. This is where we may be transitioning to. Like, what's your input and what do you think? And I think without that kind of communication, everything would have been lost and you know, it would have just been overly stressful. Um, so that's why I say, you know, you more knowledge to your spouse, but ideally the, the reciprocal behavior to make sure that she's taking care of you or she is taking care of as well. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. I definitely want to say, Jamar, excellent question. And I hope we were able to answer it. And I definitely would say, just keep your dream going. Don't let anybody deter you from this dream. Obviously, Dr. David Hampton has had many twists and turns and has continued to thrive and is now providing an amazing service to the folks down in the south side of Chicago. So you can definitely do it. In terms of outside of the box ways, you know, I would also say just make sure you are as sound as possible within a medical standpoint. You got to play the game in order to be involved, right? So you got to make sure that you're doing well in school and you're doing well with your board examinations and board certification. You got to make sure you jump through those hoops also. But I'm glad that you're listening to the show so that you can be exposed to all the extraordinary things that doctors like Dr. Hampton are doing. So just want to say to you, Jamar, just keep up the great work. Don't lose faith. Keep listening to the show. I hope you are able to continue to listen and we'd definitely like to hear an update from you. And to you, Dr. David Hampton, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know that we were supposed to record earlier but the way how the life of a trauma surgeon works, that's just a perfect example of me being a trauma surgeon. Also, I'm at a trauma surgeon at a level two trauma center. And with that, the most we see really are blunt trauma. You see a significant portion, if not half of your patients are penetrating trauma, which is way different than the type of trauma patients that I see. So thank you very much again for what you do. I know it's very stressful. Well, thank you for the invite. Just mm-hmm. great to be here. Always long to help out. Thank you for your time. Whoa, 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 whoa. Slow your roll. Pump those brakes. Before you jump onto that next podcast, I need you to help me out. So if you enjoyed this episode or if you enjoy this podcast in general, I want you to take one of two options. One, subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find it that much easier to discover this show. Or two, go to the homepage. That's drneedarko.com spelled D-R-N-I-I-D-A-R-K-O.com and click on the right blue icon that says, ask me a question and leave me your feedback. Leave me your concerns. Leave me your questions. Leave me whatever pisses you to F off and I'll be sure to feature it on an upcoming Ask Dr. Nee segment. Listen, this show is nothing without you all. I appreciate y'all. Thank you so much. Peace. Peace.